Hello, my name is Lawrence Woodruff, and I have only worn a shirt 12 of the last 42 days. And I'm Michael Ralph, and four days ago, I brushed my teeth. Professional development requires ongoing reflection and dialogue. So join us as we spend our Saturday discussing education research and drinking beer. Today, we are drinking two different beers from the Treehouse Brewing Company. The first is Single Shot Coffee Milk Stout with Vanilla Bean, and the second is Double Shot Coffee Milk Stout with Vanilla Bean. I like being back in the stout game. It pours thick and rich like a stout. These are also, these are, these are heavies, right? These are, these are, these are true pints. This is a, yeah, it's a little, little, yeah. This is a 6.4% by volume uh, APV, this first one. So I'm excited to try these. They're based in Massachusetts, right? So this one's uh, from a little further away. And we have to uh, thank our beer vizier, Aaron Matthew, for making sure we got these. He mailed them to us from his region. Thanks, man. What are we doing today, Honcho? Our second month of emergency remote teaching leaves us searching for ways to help our students grow in all the areas we value. We start by reading a paper that identifies connections between socio-emotional constructs with ways to promote growth in executive function and citizenship together. Later, we read a program guide to effectively planning remote field trips, avoid common mistakes, and find options for connecting with possible visitors to your remote classroom. Finally, our peer review shares detailed feedback from authors of last month's paper on award-winning online instructors. Let's get started. So, for our first segment, we have read Intra-Individual Associations Between Intentional Self-Regulation and Pro-Social Behavior During Adolescence, Evidence for Bidirectionality. That was published in the Journal of Adolescence. The authors are Madison Mehmet Ellison, Laura Padilla-Walker, Jeremy Jorgensen, and Sarah Coyne. This was an interesting paper, and I did enjoy reading it. I'm glad that I read it because it's about self-regulation and... Um, and about pro-social behavior, because we are living in a time socially where those two things are challenging for all of us. And so it's very, very timely. Um, and I, as I was reading, I was like, well, what does this mean about me in a classroom? And I realized it's okay. It's okay that there isn't a lot of direct application to my regular daily practice in this paper, because it's still important. And there is some when I was searching for papers to fill for this month, this is our second month teaching in this emergency remote learning scenario, right? Where you and I are in separate places. I don't go anywhere anymore. And yet we still both are working with students. And so as I was thinking about what are the things that are going to be useful or salient in this environment, um, I know that there's a lot of discussion about how do we help students continue to make academic progress. You know, state testing is going away in a lot of places, but that doesn't mean that we are no longer interested in helping them know things. Uh, but there are also other pieces of student development that are really important right now. Um, and that includes things like socio-emotional learning. That includes things like uh, sense of security, stress management, citizenship. Those sorts of things are all also really important. And if we're just talking about higher of needs, we have to recognize that this stressful time, some, some of it has to be 
giving students the space and potentially the support in managing those other those other problems. And so as I was looking around to find something that's, I think, actionable in how do we help support development of these socio-emotional skills though, um, the was the pretty exciting for me to find. Though at the make some suggestions about how we could implement these things. The crux of the paper was about finding the relationship in teenagers about their concept of their self, their ability to self-regulate, and their concept regarding their uh, willingness and involvement in helping strangers, or their, that's the representation for pro-social behavior. Does having more self-regulation increase our pro-social behaviors? Pro-social behavior increase our self-regulation in teenagers? That was the question being explored here. And so I feel like it's worth taking a minute to think about what specifically are we talking about with self-regulation and with pro-social behavior, self-regulation in particular, um, because that unpacks a little bit. I The first thing that came to my mind was the marshmallow experiment that we did years ago in one of our very first episodes. And it's not quite the same thing, but they're related. Um, there's behavioral self-regulation and there's emotional self-regulation. And in both cases, it's really, it's a person's ability to control, to manipulate, um, or to have at least awareness of and intentionality about how they approach particular things. For instance, um, if I wake up in the morning and I'm just having a really hard time uh, thinking about going to work, I don't want to go to work. I feel tired. I feel frustrated. I really don't want to be work. I really don't want to do that. But I recognize that even though I have these emotions that suggest I, I want to do one thing, I recognize that my, my well-being, my sense of self-actualization, what I want for myself long term, all require me to go to work. So I am choosing to get ready and to be at work on time and to engage in healthy work behaviors. Uh, so that ability to have control over my behavior in the face of emotions that might um, drive me to do other things, that is that is self-regulation. I am choosing, I am being thoughtful about how I approach these scenarios. When an individual is under a period of stress for a prolonged period of time, uh, it becomes harder to self-regulate. So that's one of the reasons why I think I really enjoyed reading this article, because as we all globally are handling this pandemic crisis, we are finding the challenges of self-regulation to become greater uh, as, as we continue to endure this circumstance. So it was refreshing and, and it was valuable just to affirm our experience. Now, one of the problems with the term self-regulation that they, the authors themselves brought up is that it's so broad. It can mean so many things. So within the context of this paper, they kind of had to narrow it down and define it. And in this paper, they used, uh, they reused survey results that had been uh, done for a different purpose and really focused in on a, a particular um, aspect of the survey. And their representation of self-regulation was how does the student perceive their ability to make and reach their goals? That is their proxy for self-regulation. So I'm just, I'm thinking about from a research standpoint, they, their in was pretty good. They talked to like 500, 500 um, students. Uh, across this longitudinal study. The, the work was done from 2007 to 2016. Um, and so they collected a lot of uh, rich time series type data. 
which is all really good. And so I feel like it justifies the trade-off of those self-report measures have some limitations of their own. But we could also see how does a student's perception of their self-regulation when they're 12 compare to it when they're 14, compared to it when they're uh, 16, compared to when they're 18. I was persuaded. My first look, I'm like, oh, self-report measures are not my favorite. But also they were able to do some pretty powerful things in other areas of the design because that was their approach there. So, you know. Um, the second aspect of the study, the second variable that they were ex- uh, exploring was a student's perception of their own pro-social behavior. And they pro-social behavior, again, is also could mean a lot of things. They narrowed it to uh, their willingness and involvement in helping strangers, uh, since strangers don't have a pre-existing relationship or or reliability or dependability that needs to be repaired or maintained. So uh, they were asked the question, I voluntarily help those I do not know, and I help those I do not know, even if it's not easy for me, and rate how well they agree with that statement as a representation of their self-perspective regarding their pro-social behavior. Uh, And both of these areas of questioning are really salient for this age group of students, as the authors pointed out, especially in that middle school, high school transition periods. Uh, This is is one of the times in their lives where they're encountering a lot of strangers. They're encountering a lot of uh, social restructuring as they go about trying to make friends and understand what uh, friendship and other other forms of relationship, uh, how they form and are maintained uh, in this in this time period. And so it's a really good time to understand how these two constructs, how self-regulation and pro-social behaviors interact with each other, because they're both really important for students in this age group. And so their prediction was that there's got to be some some feedback mechanisms. As I practice the one, I'm going to be able to get better at the other also, or vice versa. Um, But it's not perfectly symmetrical. This isn't a complicated study. There's not a whole lot of moving parts that we've got to explain. They asked kids at different ages how they felt about making goal, reaching their goals and how they felt about helping others. And they said, are there any relationships between those two things? And they did. They did find some. What I, this is the heart takeaway that I, I think is worth talking about. That in early adolescence, the 12-year-olds, the 14-year-olds, pro- pro-social behavior had a tendency to improve their self-regulation. So those who perceive themselves as being helpful to strangers as they aged also perceived themselves as being able to reach their goals. Helping strangers helped them feel like they could reach their goals uh, as older students. That's what I, that's the takeaway that I got from this paper. The connection is important between ages. So I was thinking about if I'm working with middle school students versus if I'm working with high school students, what does this paper say to me? Uh, because middle school students, there there's a lot of overlap in the skills required to work with strangers versus regulating other parts of my behavior. And so uh, the authors point out in some of their framework, uh, I have to manage a sense of nervousness or others, other senses of um, anxiety or negative affect if I'm going to choose to interact with strangers and then help them. And so that that sort of practice can then give good uh, feedback or support other self-regulatory processes for middle school students. And so there's a lot of give and take back and forth for either of them. If you have, if you have a high self-report of self-regulation that correlates with a high self-report of pro-social behavior, and they're both, they're both linked together. But as you get older, that linkage, that 
uh, bi-directionality. It was in the title, like going both ways. It goes away. And so you do see uh, a link between if students have pro-social behavior, they are more likely to have good self-regulation because that link is still there. You still have to be able to self-regulate to execute pro-social behavior. But the other way around stops showing up. So if you have strong self-regulation, that doesn't necessarily lead to pro-social behavior. And so if I'm thinking about in, a, in an educator standpoint, what do I do with this? I'm thinking about as a middle school, as a middle school teacher or as a middle school extracurricular coordinator or as a middle school administrator, if I want to promote these um, socio-emotional constructs, if I want my students to be good citizens, I can also help them self-regulate and those things will crosstalk. I will get produ production in both. And the opposite's also true. If I want to support volunteer opportunities, I can make the justification for that investment by saying I'm helping them self-regulate, which is going to help them tackle academic endeavors also there's that justification linkage there and then in high school there are it, there are other actionable takeaways yeah when i read it i didn't I, i'm not a parent but i kind of read it from a parent's perspective like oh man if i had a kid then when we start getting to be 11 years old i'm going to start having to schedule regular opportunities to take my kids out into the world where we're going to i don't know soup kitchens or Habitat for Humanity, or doing something for strangers, specifically for strangers, uh, because uh, we want to uh, we want to model and normalize helping people as a virtue that I want my kids to be involved in. And also, I want to promote their self-regulation so that they can believe that they can set goals for themselves and achievement, and also talk about all those other broader self-regulation skills, uh, uh, meeting their own needs and being able to identify what those needs are at any at any level. So I that's where I took it. And I, so I'm not a middle school teacher, but I do have 14 year olds in class, and uh, I'm gonna start looking for more opportunities to, you know, I don't know how many times I can take my biology class and say, hey, let's go on a field trip and help strangers. I don't know how often I can do that, but I can at least begin to look for opportunities where helping other people is something that I might spend conscious time on uh, when it comes up. Well, and that could look like all sorts of things, right? So if I'm, uh, if I'm a science teacher, that could be conservation outings also, right? That could be going out and supporting all sorts of community projects that are not specifically, you know, handing something to somebody. But if I'm investing in other parts of the community in areas that aren't my immediate local, you know, neighborhood, uh, I'm willing to bet you could see some of the same benefits um, that could be more aligned to other discussions that you're having in class. I'm willing to bet that if you really expand that umbrella to be, um, if I'm helping entities that are not directly related to me, that I don't expect to see a direct relationship uh, benefit, that I expect that that'll, that'll be present here. And it's a little overly um, applied because the authors acknowledge that even though their results were significant, their effect sizes are relatively small. So these are these are correlations, but they're not they're not perfect connections, right? They're just there's there's a little bit of a correlation there, significant though it may be. But I'm also thinking about if I were, especially you said parent, if I was a parent, so I have one student, I have one child, 
and I'm thinking about, I want to help them become more responsible. I want to help them be more diligent and thorough in what they're doing. That can be helping give them some structure specifically to self-regulation, but that can also be promoting this, this pro-social outreach behavior, trying to find another way to target some of those same um, outcomes that are ultimately going to be supporting academic endeavors. And so this is something that if you're having conversations with stakeholders who want to know why you're investing time and energy um, or instructional resources or whatever it may be uh, to support things like volunteer outings or other pro-social behaviors, I think there's a clear should in this paper that says that if you spend time investing in pro-social behavior specifically, that across all of the age groups observed in this study, 12-year-olds, 14-year-olds, 16-year-olds, 18-year-olds, there is going to be a correlation between pro-social behavior and self-regulation. And self-regulation is important for academic success, especially as we go on to secondary and post-secondary types of work. You know, we don't really take the show to this place, and so none of this is, is stuff that I would expect to be arable. But I feel like this paper kind of speaks to that attitude of, well, I want them to learn responsibility, so I'm going to be rigorous in my classroom and I'm going to apply you know, heavy-handed punishments. I'm going to mete out deadlines and penalties so that they learn what the world is like. And this paper kind of says that's not really where that comes from. That's not really what that looks like. You know, This positive feedback of pro-social behavior having a connection to self-regulation and all of this is in a constellation of even more of these kinds of constructs suggests helping people do things well is better than meeting out a lot of punishments to teach them that this thing matters. It's not really out. Well, I, I, you say that that's not going to make air, but I'd like you to reconsider that because, you know, if, if our goal is to do what you're saying is to help our students become responsible citizens, which as we've said on this show is, is what you and I find to be an important uh, argument for public education. So if that is the case, then punishing them with rigorous deadlines and penalties teaches them how to navigate punishment. It's not necessarily the same because they can choose which punishments they wish to navigate and endure. Um, if we want them to be self-regulated, which is different, that is different. If we want them to be self-regulating, then what are the behaviors that contribute to that? And it turns out uh, modeling and providing opportunities to help strangers is one of those behaviors. Listen, plan, and play. So for the second segment, we have read Electronic Field Trips for Science Engagement, the Streaming Science Model. This was published in the Journal of Applied Communications in 2019. This was written by Jamie Loizo, Mary Harner, Deborah Weisenkamp, and Kevin Kent. And so I cued this paper because I was thinking about how am I approaching instruction? And one piece of this is a great many people in all sorts of industries are stuck working in this remote world, right? We're work from home, we're... Um, we're having our research efforts suspended and we're having our collaborations suspended. And so there's a lot of folks, there's a lot of instances of authors, of researchers, of um, experts in the field who have a lot more time and availability to engage with communities right now. I know particularly Neil Shubin, who is an author of a book 
I love your inner fish has been really active um, engaging with classrooms of students. And so this paper is kind of an analysis of how do you effectively approach having virtual field trips, which means how do I go to places where people do things, where people science, where people math, where people literature, whatever that may be, but how do we effectively structure that experience? Because in our emergency remote teaching environments, those kinds of experiences can be essential to effective instruction. This is more of a manual of, hey, we're a program that does electronic field trips to provide uh, distance experiences for kids in the classroom. This is how we do it. If I wanted to do this, see that here's another thing is that I didn't see this for teachers. This isn't an, this is not for teachers. Well, I think there are some takeaways for teachers. Yeah. There are some things that teach that can inform. I was looking around for papers for the second segment and I really wanted something that gave, that explained some options for bringing the real world into our remote connections, because trying to teach online, this is our second month in this scenario, probably not the last one. And so how do we, provide authentic experiences to our students to anchor real learning when we're all stuck in our houses. Uh, and that's kind of tough. And so one of the things I've, I've seen some folks using are some of these remote interaction opportunities uh, like Skype a scientist, like having author talks um, in your classrooms or in your online spaces. And so this was a paper that described an approach to doing some of those remote interactions. And this, I think, is going to be particularly important if you want to find a way to anchor um, problem-based or project-based approaches in this emergency remote learning situation that we found ourselves in right now. And so this paper kind of lays out their approach to doing this kind of work. And I think there are a couple of takeaways that teachers can use to have more effective um, remote visits to their learning spaces here in the next couple of months. Uh, I definitely appreciated how thorough it was. It, uh, it offered uh, a lot of like a lot of advice that's just wise, like double check your connectivity and your ability to stream from the uh, distance site ahead of time. Well, one of the suggestions they had in the paper is that everybody can be all gung-ho and excited and you get your scientist and they, they are working with some kind of invasive, now I'm creating a scenario, but let's say they're forest rangers and they're working with some kind of invasive tree species in the middle of this park and they're out there and they're showing you the different qualities of these trees. Uh, but it turns out the reception's really, really bad in parks. And uh, you get choppy communications, the, the connection, the feed gets dropped and you have to kind of reconnect. And maybe you get like some audio interference or, you know, the sound's not, not very good. Uh, this paper says to prevent these things, you got to make sure that you have an on-site test uh, ahead of time to make sure that that site is actually a place that you can connect to digitally. Uh, and that's just, you know, a, a checklist of covering your bases and making sure things are going to run smoothly. Because when you're in the classroom and you've got 30 students sitting there looking at the screen, waiting to talk to this person that, you know, is, 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 is a uh, novel event, right? So they, you've got their attention just because it's novel. Like, they want to be all in because it's a new thing. Uh, and then this happens. As soon as you encounter some of these setbacks, you will lose that class. And so this is a valuable manual 
for saying, how can you avoid some of these problems that are just part of the technical interfacing world? And for that regard, you know, if that's something you're into, you should, you should definitely read this. Another one of the recommendations that resonated with me um, that's still under the same umbrella of do your homework. The pre-meeting work is how you make one of these remote visits effective. Uh, and that's going to resonate between the two of us. And I agree with that. Uh, but I did remote visits from a handful of scientists while I was running my biotechnology program at the high school level. And we had a number of different researchers visit us over the course of the handful of years I was doing that. And one of the things that I've seen come up in that context, and then since I've come to higher education and been in contact with folks on the other side, is understanding the research that your professionals do, at least um, the framework where they work, matters. So having a having a genetic sequencer working on a team of five as they're coding novel software and building equipment to code genetic samples that come from new sources, that's incredibly cutting edge work and probably not appropriate for high school. But asking that person to describe the structure of DNA doesn't make sense. That's squandering their their expertise. We can do that beforehand. And so having an understanding between the two of you of what's the nature of their research and what pieces of that can I plug in to advance my curriculum so that I can prepare my students appropriately to interact with that researcher when we have that time, so we can use that time efficiently. That's a really important part of what teachers can do to get ready for this meeting ahead of time. Don't give them the basic questions that you can address in your usual classroom experiences. Understand the unique opportunity of having this researcher, this professional available, and understanding their experience, showing them as a human, showing them as somebody who's tackling problems, showing them as somebody who is making advances and then making that accessible to your to your students and in the context of your curriculum, that's going to take some homework ahead of time. And I'll give you one example of something that I found to be really effective. I had a group of biology, uh, biology, biotechnology students who were getting ready to chat with somebody who did similar work with our same organisms. And on their faculty page, they list their uh, their publications, their most important papers that they put out, and we read one, and it was hard, and we did some good, valuable literacy work, just understanding what went into their paper and what their terminology meant and how they decided to frame it. It was a lot of work, and valuable work, becoming literate in what they're writing. That was really good, well time well spent, and then on the call. Our person gave their initial spiel and said, what questions do you have? And I had a student who said, well, in your, uh, in your 2015 paper, you made the claim that there was this particular mutation that came up. And we want to understand more about the evidence you marshaled for that. And the look on that researcher's face when they mentioned their particular publication and asked a specific question about what they asked was worth all of the gold in the world. It was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen as a teacher. They said, you read that paper? That was actually their first reaction was, you read that paper? And the, all the students in the class kind of looked at us like, yeah. And they were like, oh my gosh. I Yeah, so here's, here's, how, here's how we did that. And they started talking about their work. And the whole dynamic of the room changed because we weren't just here to hear their, their fundamental spiel. We were here to talk. We were to talk about their work. And that really made the whole thing authentic. I'm going to use that word again. And so do your homework 
as a teacher to understand what is it about their work that we can plug into our curriculum and then spend the time ahead of time so you can really leverage that moment of having somebody who does this on a day-to-day basis and hear their unique experience rather than hearing them explain something that you could explain just fine in your classroom. Take advantage of the opportunity. This is, I feel like the should of this paper is have college students make electronic field trips and coordinate with teachers. Um, And so that means teachers, you know, put the burden of scheduling complications, curricular, like work with those college students, work with the people that are offering this experience uh, to, to, to offer your kids these um, external distance experiences when you can't take them there yourselves. There's another should that came out of this that I noted. Uh, They shared a sample schedule um, from a visit and their schedule had segment one, seven minutes, Q and a 10 minutes, segment two, five minutes, Q and a 10 minutes. And that interleaving of question and answer with content, like, like prepared segments that's not how I've run any of my remote visits. Like my, my knee-jerk reaction and the folks of anybody I've ever talked to is save your questions to the end. Interleaving sounds better. Like we're going to have a few minutes. Now let's talk about what we just talked about. And that kind of wisdom, let's not all make the same mistake. Like they made that mistake and figured it out. Let's all do that. That's amazing. All of my future remote visits are going to be better because I saw that schedule. Uh, you making that comment makes me feel really good because I just Zoomed two lectures this week for my first time ever. And my my going into it, I was like, I'm going to lecture about these things and then I'm going to have five minutes of stop for questions. And then we're going to we're gonna add this new information and we're going to stop for questions. Uh, there was another piece of just literal examples of um, places that people can plug in to find professionals who want to um, do these sorts of remote visits. Because of course, social media is a factor, but not everybody does social media. And so what are some other places that people can go? And the paper provides some examples of places you can find professionals who want to engage. Um, It's it's on their first page of their paper. Um, But I want to add one more because in our area, uh, there's a prep KC does um, a connection opportunity where they have um, people in the field, professionals doing like STEM related work and they do vetting, they do training, they do feedback to help those presenters effectively interact with folks here in the community. And so if you're looking for ways to get plugged in or ways to get connected, this paper gives some ways to get started. There are more depending on your area. And I know that I want to be helpful to help folks find professionals to engage with their students. So if you want to, and you're just not, you just don't know where to start, um, put up, put up a flag, put up a balloon and let's all work together to find ways to get professionals involved with educators. Uh, yeah, they did mention the value of authenticity and relevance to students And that is the strength of field trips. That is the strength of an actual content expert uh, living the life, talking with your kids. Uh, And so uh, being able to recreate that has logistical complications, but has a very significant payoff. We're in this together.
so we heard back from the authors who wrote the second paper that we analyzed last month about award-winning online teachers. And so we heard back from these four folks. Swapna Kumar, Florence Martin, Albert Ritzhaupt, and Kiran Budrani. And they gave an incredibly in-depth listen to the episode and some rich comments that we're going to unpack together here, right here, right now. Well, uh, they had, it looks like, uh, six major points. Their first point was that they agreed with us that we stressing the authenticity, multimedia resource, student creation of content, and explaining, explaining and communicating purpose of activities are uh, qualities that contribute to successful uh, distance learning practices. Uh, their second bullet was similarly just agreement that said um, this is totally applicable to higher education and K-12. The instructors they talked to were all higher education, um, but they really see the need for this kind of discussion and research in um, both primary, secondary, and tertiary education. And so they reaffirmed that that uh, applicability was there. But then we get into a couple of spots where they have some comments for consideration. Yeah, we made the claim that uh, being an award-winning teacher doesn't necessarily mean that you are an expert teacher, and they challenged us on that. They uh, they made the statement that uh, professional associations that award these teachers are drawing from online uh, are drawing from deliberate, rigid guidelines that have individuals reviewing the materials who are well versed in law online learning, and that the professional associations who are awarding these awards are known for their focus on online learning. So they're saying that no, the source of these awards are taking them very seriously and assessing those teachers for efficacy. And what we started to unpack was that that is a proxy, right? And so uh, I stand by the claim that award-winning teachers and highly effective teachers, while if we were going to make a Venn diagram, they overlap a lot. And I believe, especially with their argumentation here, that in this case, they overlap even more so than most. I agree with that. But there are certainly going to be some teachers that are isolated in either of those sides. We're going to overlook some, and we're going to award some folks who are not as effective as we believe. So I, I totally agree that it's both reasonable and that in this case, we could be highly confident that there is good overlap. I concede all of that. But let's not lose track of the fact that this is a proxy. So I stand by that, but they want to reaffirm this is a pretty good proxy, and I totally yield. It's absolutely a good one. Their fourth bullet was in a similar vein. Lolly brought up, if we're going to use awards, why wouldn't we use internal evaluations? Why wouldn't we ask for collegial recommendations or, or perhaps student evaluations to use those to identify effective instructors? And the authors responded to that. And they in particular pointed out um, student evaluations are, are not very well paired with instructor effectiveness, especially when you get into literature on the subject. And I totally agree with that. Uh, student evaluations are not a very effective way to evaluate instructors. And generally speaking, we probably need to stop doing them. I, Michael Ralph, am going to make that claim. And so I'm, I'm totally with you there. Um, the way that I interpreted Lolly's comments last month was asking about collegial references or department chair suggestions for who are really effective instructors. Uh, and the authors had something to say about that also. The complication with peer evaluations uh, especially at the university level, uh, well, I guess at every level, is that they're not always publicly shared. So it's it's hard to use those to know things about which, especially if you're a research researcher, it's hard to know 
you can't you can't you can't use them because they're not publicly shared. So that information is just not available for making research decisions. And I want to pitch in for this particular topic. Um, I think that's a good thing. Uh, there needs to be a safe place for colleagues and departments to have honest conversations about how we're all doing. And that is going to be a safe place to provide feedback or critique or discussion that's not going to end up being propagated elsewhere or have ramifications for how people are recognized or promoted or rewarded or whatever. So yes, those internal evaluations are not generally publicly available. And I think that's a good thing. So I think that's, I think it's fine that we don't use those. So um, I just I, I recognize this comment the researchers couldn't use them and I don't want them to use them. Uh, another comment that they made is that uh, development of multimedia uh, design and practice are critical toward the success of online practice. And as a consequence, there are actually other other research that has been done by this group of 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 researchers addressing that particular issue. So that issue is sort of uh, addressed as a prerequisite and further study can be done to review the importance of online design for education. Yeah, and that was another thing that Wally really underlined or highlighted. She said that was uh, something that was um, uh, resonated with her was how do we do those things? And this author group wanted to emphasize there's a handful of other papers that they that they have published um, and they wanted to highlight those findings in case any of you found them useful and wanted to think more on that subject. Uh, and their final comment, which actually made me feel really proud of you, Ralph, because you're the one who made this comment initially. Uh, they applauded identifying the fact that uh, the every single award-winning teacher provided asynchronous opportunities. They had either lectures or lessons or something online that students can access at any time, not just the live Zoom lectures, but additional resources that students can access at any point. Uh, and they said that was valuable and an important component. So thanks for identifying that, Mr. Ralph. So uh, thank you to the author group for taking the time to listen and to give us this feedback. We are, This is all better together and making connections and having dialogue amongst us uh, makes us all better as professionals. So thank you for writing to us, author group. And uh, we're gonna continue to um, struggle to improve. That's what we're here to do. This is better with all of you. How was the beer? How were the beers? How were the beers? So our purpose in this particular episode is to compare and contrast the single shot and the double shot. And my experience, the single shot is a lot more um, flavorful. What I mean by that is I was very aware of the vanilla. And I was very aware of the other coffee flavors in the single shot versus the double shot. Um, it felt more like a stout. Like I, I sensed the vanilla, but the, the sweetness of the alcohol was a high um, experience in the double uh, versus the single. So the, the other um, accoutrement, if you will, were less of a big deal for me than double shot, which honestly means I enjoyed the double shot more. Uh, for me, I definitely got rich, bitter, acidic coffee flavor from the single shot. It was, if you want a coffee stout to taste like a coffee stout, drink that single shot from uh, Treat, what is it, Treehouse Brewery. 
Um, because it really does capture. I, I feel like this is one of the most coffee, the coffee, it's one of the most coffee stouts I've ever had. The single shot. I'm going to be honest. You said you, you, you felt the vanilla. I didn't, I didn't actually feel the vanilla. I, for me, it was just like coffee, coffee, coffee. Um, but then I will agree with you when I went to double shot, uh, double shot, uh, it was the the coffee and the bitter and the acidic was far muted and sort of the sweeter effect of the it's only it's only three or so percent higher alcohol content but that effect um, really muted some of the more aggressive flavors and the aggressive experience so it was a far smoother easier to drink um, beer that I would say muted yeah I agree with you it's more like a traditional stout because the novel flavors were muted. So, so thank you, Aaron, for sending those to us. This challenge of comparing the two definitely put me in a place of productive struggle as beer drinkers. So thank you for that. And I liked drinking them. So thank you for that. So thanks for tuning in this month. I know that this is a crazy and strange time trying to navigate uh, working with our students with all these constraints and this crisis going on. If there's something that we can read or something that we can help with to help you be more effective as an instructor, reach out to us because we are all in this together. Um, we will see you again next month. We want to improve. So as we pursue growth, discuss research, and struggle well.